Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Grigor Dimitrov is Brisbane champion. We're going to get into his final against Holger Runa. We're going to talk about United Cup. Congratulations, Germany. We'll break down all three rubbers. That's right. Mixed doubles analysis this week. Uh, also, a quick word on Andre Rublev. He won, on, he won Hong Kong. That'll be at the very end of the show. But we'll start... With Rafael Nadal, sad news, he's pulling out of the Australian Open. There isn't all that much to say about this that Rafa didn't say in his social media post, but uh, there is a little bit of reaction and some some things that I'll add. First of all, sorry for the fans. I mean, I'll be upset if this happens at the U.S. Open, for example, because knowing this might be Rafa Nadal's last year on tour. Yeah, I, I want to see him in New York. I know I'm going to be on site. I know if he's there, if he plays, I'll get a chance to see him and I'll appreciate that moment and soak it in knowing that it might be the last time. So bummer for the fans in Australia, the tournament organizers, everybody, all the stakeholders when it comes to the Australian Open. And uh, that's kind of your first thought when something like this happens. But when it comes to understanding his decision and why he did this, and what the calculus is, I think it's safe to say that Nadal is taking a very cautious approach with his comeback based on a couple things. One, I think anybody would be smart to take a cautious approach after not playing for a year and making sure that they don't try to do too much too fast. But two, the goal this year is a little different. It's to stay healthy. And when that is your paramount, when that is your number one, then I think the thinking changes a little bit about what kind of risks you want to take when you suffer minor injuries. Because the fear, what keeps Nadal up at night, is that the minor injury turns into a severe injury, which in January, that would be crushing. Now, for the rest of the year, his schedule decisions become pretty interesting. And I think it comes down to the question, does Nadal want to have a normal season or does he want to go all in on clay? I don't know the answer to that question, but that is going to be the premise at which his scheduling decisions from here on out in the immediate future are likely to be based on. If he wants to go all in on clay... You can play the Golden Swing in February, play two, three weeks in a row, kick your feet up, rest, recover, train in March. Don't play the hardcourt 1000s, Sunshine Double, uh, and then you're ready for April, Monte Carlo. Skip Barcelona. I, I think he should. That should be a casualty no matter what he does. Then you play the Clay Masters, and then you're ready for Roland Garros. That's the all-in-on-clay option. The not all in on clay, I'm going to try to have something that resembles a normal season option would be maybe don't play in February because it's smaller events. Play the Sunshine Double. And then maybe play Madrid-Rome. Something like that. That makes sense in my mind. Uh, or maybe Monte Carlo, skip Barcelona, Madrid, Rome. Maybe Barcelona, Madrid, see how much tennis you've played, then make a decision about Rome. Maybe. Okay, let's move on to Grigor Dimitrov, whose title drought 
comes to an end. It had been since the ATP finals in 2017, which was just something that all of last year, especially with the tennis he played last year, was a drought that was just screaming to end. So I'm really happy it did. I'm really happy for Grigor. Meant a lot to him. And uh, I'll get into the specifics of the match in a moment. But I went to Twitter because I took a second to think about it. And I, I said, okay, Maria Sakkari's title drought ended last fall. Karen Hatchinov's title drought, that was since 2018 Paris, that ended last fall. Grigor Dimitrov's title drought just ended. Who are the headliners here? Who are the players now who have these, these titleless streaks going that are perplexing? Perplexing because they're too good a player. So I, I went to Twitter. Here's what I got in response. Here's some ones that resonated with me. Uh, Tommy Paul, Stockholm 2021. Given the last two years he's had and the level that he's played and the fact that, you know, you look at Tommy's last two years and mostly it's like, wow, he's taken this big step to become becoming this, you know, consistent top 20 player. He hasn't won a title since 2021. Karolina Muhova, Seoul 2019. That's insane to me. Muhova has made three major semifinals or better in that span where she hasn't won a title. And then there's a group of players who I think, I think Paul and Muhova are the most surprising. A little bit less su surprising. Victoria Azarenka, Miami 2016. That one's pretty surprising. Maybe that should go in the top group. Uh, but then, you know, the reason I grouped these three players together is because they're all post-prime. Azarenka, Miami 2016. Stan Wawrinka, 2017 Geneva. Andy Murray, 2019 Antwerp. And then there's a couple of guys who have not won titles. It's not really a title drought. It's that they've never won titles, and maybe they deserve a shout in this conversation. Jan Leonard Struff and Alejandro Davidovich Fikina. So bringing this back to Dimitrov, not only has he broken the title drought, he has done what so many fail to do. Take a great indoor hardcourt season after the U.S. Open and take your off season and then go to Australia and keep it up. So hard to do that. And while we're talking about Dimitrov and Holger Runa in this Brisbane final. We've seen it with both of these guys. Dimitrov in 2018 starts three in the world, coming off of the year-end championship title, loses to Kyrgios in the Brisbane semifinal, and then Kyle Edmund in the Australian Open quarterfinal. Not disastrous, but certainly not any sort of continuation of what we saw from Dimitrov at the end of 2018. And then Holger Runa, last year, a little bit more fresh in the memory, comes off four finals in a row, Paris title, beat Djokovic, lost to Nishioka first round in Adelaide, lost to Rublev fourth round at the Australian Open. Not a disastrous Australian Open, but a lot of people thought he was the favorite in that match, and he couldn't get it done. As for the final itself, uh, here's what is sticking out to me about Grigor Dimitrov right now. You have the basics, the meat and potatoes, which is the first serve and the forehand, which have just been really, really good for a while now. First serve, forehand. So that serve plus one has been firing for him. And then in return games... He is so athletic. He is such a special shot maker, especially and particularly from defensive positions. He's just bound to steal, steal a couple points in a return game here and there. And when you are taking care of your business because your first serve is damaging and reliable, as is your forehand, and then you can flip it around in return games... And you can do super athletic things 
and come up with great scrambles, etc. It's an awesome combination. So let's get into that. In the first set, the serving was incredible. I thought it was kind of a shootout between Holger and, and Grigor. When I say shootout, it was like a lot of chances back and forth, super high quality first set. But then it kind of felt like when either player was under pressure, they'd come up with just huge first serves to get themselves out of it. And uh, the best chance for either player to actually convert a break point was probably like the fifth point of the match at 1540 when Runa did make a return and then ended up missing a forehand on break point. But after that, after that, every break point that Dimitrov faced, he made a great first serve. So again, think about the serve plus one here. At 3040 love all, he makes his first serve, sets up a routine plus one forehand winner. At three all add out, makes a first serve into the body, approach shot, overhead, points over. In the tie break, he hit two aces in the tie break. At 6-5, pressure point obviously set on the line, great first serve out wide, hits the approach shot, finishes with the overhead. Clinical stuff. Wins the first set. In the second set, Grigor will ultimately get the break. And I think that this is a game worth digging into a little bit deeper. So let's do it. Three all second set. We go to some film study. Uh, again, we're going to look at scrambling and athleticism for Dimitrov. We're also going to start to bring Holger into this analysis and talk about some of the mistakes that that he made. I'm also going to give him some praise at the end of this because I, I actually, all things considered, think he played a pretty good match. And let me just say this right now. A lot of the top players just looked really, really good this week, both in United Cup, Brisbane. Rublev was the favorite in Hong Kong. He won Hong Kong. This was the one seed versus the two seed, and they both play a great level in the final. I just saw a lot of good tennis uh, from, from the top players or the players who you uh, you expect to see play top tennis. And that includes, again, that includes the higher-ranked players at United Cup as well. Okay, so uh, this is going to be the first point of... This is going to be the first point of this three-all game. Chip return Dimitrov, plus one backhand for Runa, which is this unbelievable angle. Almost too good to be true from this position on the court. So, okay, Dimitrov is now in an emergency situation. He's going to slide out past the double sideline and hit a slice backhand. And Runa reads this, kind of reads his outgoing ball, and decides to try to sneak in. He thinks that he's going to get a floater because Dimitrov is stretched out. He thinks it's going to come in the middle of the court, and he's going to really look for a ball to take out of the air and hopefully do it before Dimitrov has a chance to recover back to the middle of the court, and it'll be an easy put away for Runa. That's what Holger's looking for. I don't know if Dimitrov saw Runa out of the corner of his eye, but Grigor, who is so skilled with his backhand slice, is going to kind of knife this ball down the line. And because Runa was late in deciding to approach the net. And because he's so far back, he does not split step here. He does not split step whatsoever. And as a result, he really has trouble changing direction and trying to get over to his right to retrieve this ball from Dimitrov. And he barely gets there and he takes a slap at it and he misses it. So love 15. Next point, neutral rally, backhand slice for Dimitrov. And Runa recognizes that he's going to have a chance to hit his forehand here. Dimitrov's pretty far back. He's going to slice this cross court. The ball's going to take a long time to travel to the other side. Plenty of time for Runa to run around and hit a forehand. He's going to go inside in approach. Okay, well, what makes this difficult is the ball is low. And you have to hit it over the high part of the net. And you have to generate all of your own pace. That's what makes this a difficult shot. And if you hit the inside in approach shot and it's not excellent, 
you're in big trouble because you're hitting it at the righty forehand with an open cross-court angle on the passing shot. Okay, pretty basic stuff. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. So Runa hits this forehand inside in approach. It is not very good. It's way too central. It might be so central that Dimitrov is a little caught off guard. However, again, Runa is having to scramble into open court here, and he doesn't really split step. And he's in no man's land. Dimitrov hits this passing shot uh, cross court, but it's a little bit, it's not very cross court. It's only slightly cross court. What happens here, because Runa doesn't split step, he runs right into the ball. Runs right into the ball, hits a very cramped volley, and it kind of it pops up. It, it lands deep, but Dimitrov, as good as he is, he's going to smoke this passing shot. Really, really good pace, and he just blew it right by Runa for a winner. So now it's love 30. And, uh, you know, what are my overall takeaways on that point? I think Runa tried to make something happen with his forehand off of Dimitrov's backhand slice cross court that was pretty ambitious. It would have taken a really good forehand from this position. Um, let me show you the position again. From this position, pretty far back in the court, pretty low. No pace to work with against Dimitrov with his great running forehand would have taken something pretty special to pull this off, in my opinion. So I don't don't consider this really a high percentage play. So that made it love 30. Now we are going to go to 15-30. Runa gets on the board in this game. And this is a second serve. Holger knows that if he hits a second serve to Dimitrov's backhand, he's going to get the chip return. So he gets the slice return, cross court, and because Runa knows he's going to get the chip return, he's very much ready to run around and use his big forehand. So right away on the plus one ball, he takes this inside in. But as this ball kind of drifts towards the, the right sideline, and as Runa tries to get around it, he doesn't get quite... He doesn't really get his feet set completely. And you can see, by the way, he falls off to his left here that he wasn't completely on balance, which is okay. Sometimes when you run around a forehand and you don't fully get to the spot and you're moving to your left, your momentum is going to kind of pull you off to your left. You're not going to be completely on balance. Happens all the time. But again... We have Runa on the first ball going huge inside in um, from with both both of his feet behind the baseline off of a Dimitrov chip that, again, stays low, not a lot of pace to work with. And guess what? He, he just misses this. It's very close. It's very close. Now, before I kind of analyze that point, I just want to show you what happens on the next point, 1540. Now we are um, in a rally again, um, and Runa, again, was this off of a chip? I think he got a chip backhand again, and this time he goes inside out. Really nice, sharp, inside out, short angle. Now Dimitrov has to slice again, and look, there's really no way for Dimitrov to get out of trouble here. He's in massive trouble because he's got his slice backhand. Runa is going to get a forehand on the next ball no matter what. Um, it doesn't matter if Dimitrov goes down the line. It doesn't matter if he goes cross court. It's probably going to be an offensive, another offensive forehand for Runa. But it, it doesn't matter because Dimitrov actually just misses this just deep on the backhand slice. So now it is 30-40. For this 30-40 point, we're going to get the low angle. And it's another second serve. And Dimitrov is going to slice again. And again, Runa has time to run around. This ball's about knee level. 
Holger, it looks like he's got both feet basically on the baseline. And same shot. Plus one forehand inside in. And again, he misses just wide. Again, he misses just wide. The same exact point. Twice. One at 15-30. One at 30-40 to get broken. And in that point, Dimitrov used his backhand slice on like every single point. Sorry, in that game, Dimitrov used his backhand slice on basically every single point, And Runa looked to use his forehand in response on every single point. And the one time he went inside out, he won the point. The three times he went inside in, he lost the point. Now... We know that there is no, like, there's no rule about this, okay? Sometimes it's great to go inside in. Sometimes it's great to go inside out. Uh, there's no right. There's no wrong. But let's also break this down and talk about what are the factors that help Holger make a decision about going inside out versus inside in. And therefore... What's the high percentage way to go about playing aggressive tennis, which is what he's trying to do here. And it's the right thing to do. He should be playing aggressive tennis off of this uh, backhand slice. But he should be building the point through his forehand inside out is what I would argue. He misses this forehand inside in twice, just wide. Because of what I talked about when I talked about the forehand inside in approach, it has to be so good because if it's not good, you are setting up a running forehand cross court for Grigor Dimitrov who hits that shot exceptionally well versus let's say you hit an inside out forehand and you don't hit it all that well. How does Dimitrov counter you? How does he hurt you? He does it by changing direction on his drive backhand down the line. When we talk about comfort levels and percentages, that's not even close. Dimitrov, Dimitrov's ability to hit a running forehand cross court on a consistent basis, high level, versus his ability to off of a heavy topspin inside-out forehand by Runa to redirect with his drive down the line, that's not even close. So if you're Holger, why are you so quick to go inside-in here? It's by far the more difficult shot to pull off, not only because less court to work with, higher part of the net, not only because of that stuff that we always talk about when it comes to hitting down the line versus cross-court, but also because... The punishment for not hitting a super high quality ball on your inside in shot is it's pretty it's a pretty severe punishment. You're likely to be in trouble. Inside out, not so much. Not so much. You're hitting to Dimitrov's backhand. Um, and you're asking him to redirect uh versus go cross court. What I would then say is, okay, when is the right time to go inside in? The right time to go inside in is, let's go back to the decision makers. It's the same thing that determines when the right time to go uh, to go down the line is. Because inside in is a form of down the line, really. So it's your court position, your opponent's court position, incoming ball. Those are the three big ones. So for me, on a backhand slice for Dimitrov, here's what this means. You want a ball that Dimitrov pops up a little bit, gets a little bit too high up on his backhand slice. You want a ball that lands a little bit shorter. You want a ball where you can step in closer inside the baseline. And you ideally want Dimitrov further off the court. That's what you want. Then you go inside in. And I would argue very, very strongly, I would argue very strongly that if Runa a couple of times would work his forehand inside out into Dimitrov's backhand, nice and big and heavy, he would ultimately start to get those things in his favor. He would find the shorter ball. He would find the higher ball. 
he would be able to step in further. He would get Dimitrov pulled off the court more. You got to watch, if you're Runa, watch the players who do this really, really well. Watch Rublev, Tsitsipas, a lefty version would be Nadal. Someone who was awesome at this was Ferrer. Watch how what watch what they do. They don't generally go inside in on the first ball. And if they do, usually they went inside out on the first ball on the last four. And then you have element of surprise. You have the player, you know, the opponent leaning the wrong direction. You have higher effectiveness. That's usually what you'd see. All right. So that's the that's the three all game that Runa got broken in, and uh, Dimitrov continued to serve really well, execute at a high level, and ends up winning the match in straight sets. Um, for for Runa, just to also give some big picture thoughts, like I did for Dimitrov, his first serve was really good in this match, just like Grigor's was. His approach on the forehand is mostly better than what it was last year, which I talked about in the mailbag. More repeatable aggression. He just drifted into some old habits in that last game where I thought he was too desperate to be offensive, uh, which again, I don't like for Holger because I think he's he can be so elite from neutral. He He's so elite defensively. And that's why I'm hard on him when he's looking to force low percentage plays offensively. I'm even harder on him. Um, then the other thing for, for Runa is his shot tolerance looks better to me. And I think that comes down to both fitness and discipline. And there was a, a point in the first set. He was facing break point at 1-2 in the first set. And I thought there was this unbelievable example for Holger where if I, if I were uh, Boris Becker, I would show him this point and say, boy, this is, this is the one. This is where all of the work you've done pays off um, on a point like this. It's a 34-shot rally. Lots of neutralizations from both players. Runa goes sideline to sideline a bunch of times. And on the 33rd shot of the rally, both players are exhausted. This was a really high-quality point. Uh, on the 33rd shot of the rally, Runa has some time on his backhand, but he's pretty deep in the court, pretty out of position. He, he can go down the line. It's there for him if he wants it. It's that that highlight reel shot. It's that cookie being dangled in front of him. He stays disciplined. On the 33rd shot of the rally, he hits a high percentage backhand trade cross court. And Dimitrov on the next ball, he's the first one to bail out, hitting a backhand drop shot from a position that he would normally not hit a backhand drop shot from because... Um, he was a little bit too far back behind the baseline, but he was tired. When people are tired, they, they do those things. Holger getting the reward for being patient and playing the percentage. Um, however, I do think there was a dip in patience, big picture in the second set. You look at nine plus rallies, five, three Runa in set one, nine, three Dimitrov in set two. Okay, let's go on to United Cup. Germany winning United Cup. Sort of a miracle. Feels that way, huh? First of all, they didn't win their group. They lost in their group. And advanced to the quarterfinals as the best runner-up. Which is this very convoluted system that honestly, United Cup, if there is a United Cup next year, and I didn't talk about this last week... They should go to the drawing board on, on this because it's impossible to follow as a fan and it takes away some drama. But essentially, the reason Germany even got to the quarterfinals is because they had a higher percentage of games won than Chile and the United States, who also finished 1-1, one and one, just like Germany. So then they go to the semis. Two match points saved against Australia in the doubles. I think they won that 10-point tiebreak 15-13 to 13 in the mixed doubles. And then almost lost to Poland in the singles. Zverev saves two, I got to call them, United Cup points against Hercotch. And Germany ends up winning this final. So, I, I mean, look, let's be real. Germany looked like they were going to be out of this competition 
how many times? <laughs> and they won. So pretty amazing. I want to start with the mixed doubles. And then we'll work backwards from there. Why wouldn't I want to start with the mixed doubles? Why wouldn't I want to talk about Laura Siegmund? Why would I, why would I not start with her? Uh, because she's the doubles player out there. She is a excellent, excellent doubles player. And it showed because her movement was making the difference in neutral situations. I'm just going to hone in on the 10-point tiebreak that ended up deciding this United Cup as a whole. And I want to look at the points that went to neutral and how Siegmund's movement affected those points. Look, doubles can be a very serve-return game. Very serve-return. But there's just a handful of points where the serve doesn't do the trick, the return, you know, gets the point to neutral. And those are those are the couple points that that might flip a 10-point tiebreak like this. So the first one is the first point of the 10-point tiebreak. And there are a lot of things in this point that were very highlight reel. Siegmund made a bunch of incredible reflex volleys to keep Germany in the point. And then Herkoc had this unbelievable get on an overhead to keep Poland in the point. And now we're back at neutral, and it's a down-the-line baseline rally between Zverev and Sviantek. And Iga hits a forehand line, and then Zverev hits a forehand line. And now Siegmund is going to be like, okay, time to make something happen. Because that's her nature as a doubles player, and that's what makes her great. So she's going to move here. And this is subtle, but I think Iga sees her at the last second. And it goes from, oh, I have a huge target. The entire line is open. This is, this is a pretty safe and easy forehand for me. Until, okay, now I see Siegmund in the corner of my eye. I know that she's crossing. Now my target is shrunk at the last minute. And Iga pulls this just a fraction wide when I can assure you, if she didn't see Siegmund moving, her target is not anywhere near the double sideline. And she's not missing this forehand. So it's the Siegmund move that is going to make the difference here. And it's very subtle. It's very subtle, but it, it makes a huge difference. This next one is not subtle at all. Uh, it is the 1-3 point. Iga's serving. Poland is down a mini break. Zverev hits a nice crisp backhand inside-out return. And Siegmund is kind of in this three-quarters, two-back. So she's trying to defend against the Herkoc volley initially. And then as soon as Zverev gets this return past Herkoc, now she's going to come in. She starts coming in in a straight line. And then again, she wastes no time to make something happen. So she starts in a straight line, and then she moves to her right to pinch the middle. And she fully commits to another poach. So to the middle she goes. This time I don't think Iga saw her. She moved pretty late, and I don't think Iga saw her. And she's going to cut this ball off before it can get, get back to Zverev. This is a low volley, though. Iga hit this forehand very low. Generally, as a net player, you want to go... You want to go volley to volley. You want to go net player to net player. But when the volley is this low, you can't quite stick it at Hercotch. So you don't want to go at him because then he's going to stick it right back at you. Instead, Siegmund um, doesn't... I mean, I, she hits the only volley here that I think was going to finish the point. It's masterful stuff from Siegmund off of a hard Sviantek forehand. And she she just... Hits this drop volley in front of Iga, um, but also kind of too deep for, for Hubie to, to run across and get there. It's just a perfectly placed, buttery forehand volley from Siegmund. Sensational. And in the entire tiebreak, there was only three points that got to neutral. Only three. Siegmund's movement made the difference on two of them. Uh, Sviantek made sort of a inexplicable forehand unforced error on the third one. Other than that, 
It came down to Germany serving. Zverev hit four serves in this tiebreak. None came back. Siegmund hit three serves in this tiebreak. One was unreturned. The other two set up Zverev for volley finishes at net. So doesn't get any cleaner than that for Germany on serve. Poland did not make the returns. And there you have it. The anatomy of Germany's uh, win in the 10-point tiebreak. Now let's backtrack and let's talk about the singles because Zverev had to beat Hercotch in order for Germany to win the United Cup. And he had to do so having gone to sleep at 5 a.m. the morning of the match. So there are some real questions physically and mentally about how the scheduling is going to affect Zverev, especially because you can look into the uh, annals of history and find examples of Zverev being heavily affected by uh, late bedtimes. Echem Madrid. So I'm going to try to run through this match, chronological order, talk about some of the major takeaways. It did seem like Zverev was trying to be very offensive in the first set, especially in the tiebreak. And when Zverev tries to be offensive, he comes to the net. He's not all that comfortable being an offensive baseliner. He'd rather actually be a counterpunching defensive baseliner. So when it's time for Zverev to take initiative and try to win points on his own terms, usually that means hitting approach shots off of short balls really early in rallies. And he certainly did that, but it was not effective. He just wasn't opening up enough court. His approach shots weren't precise enough. And as a result, you just had a lot of net approaches where Hercotch just wasn't off balance at all hitting the passing shot. And I'm not breaking any news here, but... In the modern game, modern strength technology, you better put your opponent off balance and disrupt their contact point in some kind of way if you're going to come in. Otherwise, you're going to be hitting volleys from your shoelaces. And I, I actually think Hercotch is particularly good at dipping the ball low. And to his credit, he understands who his opponent is in Zverev. Against Zverev, you don't need to hit perfect passing shots. He's not such a good volleyer that you need to ask yourself to you know, go for the lines and try to hit winners on passing shots. You can hit it through the middle at his feet, and he's probably going to pop up the volley. And you shouldn't miss passing shots against Zverev. And to Hercotch's credit, he didn't miss passing shots. He came up with really lovely combinations of, of passing shots to beat Zverev at net over and over and over again. Zverev approached Hercotch's backhand four times in the first set tiebreak. And only one time did he get an easy volley because Hercotch was off balance. And that was the only point he won. So that's kind of, that tipped the scales in the first set. Of course, they're going to play tiebreaks. It's Zverev versus Hercotch with the way they serve. They're going to play tiebreaks. Second set, they also went to a tiebreak. But a couple of things changed in the second set. Zverev stopped coming in constantly. So he stayed back more. More baseline rallies. And Hercotch started missing a ton of first serves. Also more baseline rallies. So not only did Zverev do something to create more baseline rallies, Hercotch did something unintentionally, for more baseline rallies to occur in this match. I got to say, though, Hercotch was pretty awesome in some flashes of great shot making and the forehand to kind of hang in with Zverev from the back of the court in the ground stroke game. Hercotch was very impressive here. And uh, if his forehand wasn't humming to the best... Hercotch's forehand, Ken Hum, uh, the second set would not have gone to a tiebreak. Zverev absolutely would have broken Hercotch's serve. Uh, Hercotch made 53% of his first serves in this second set. And in the second set tiebreak, 
which I'm going to talk about in more detail. Hercotch made two out of nine first serves. However, again, Hercotch played really well on his forehand, took advantage of some Zverev baseline passivity, a couple of balls that he dropped a little short in the court, and Hercotch's forehand answered the bell. Zverev missed an overhead at 3-all, and Poland had two United Cup points at 6-4. Zverev saved the first one. First of all, mediocre first serve by Hercotch. Missed his spot. And then he had a backhand approach shot that he played very conservative. And then from there, Zverev uh, had a, a nice backhand pass, stab volley from Hercotch, which was a pretty good volley given the circumstance. And, uh, you know, it stayed very low. It wasn't short, but it was low. Zverev ended up charging in and kind of flicking this forehand pass cross court. Had some space to work with. And he used all of the space in the world because that forehand pass hit the edge of the line. And that's how close Poland was. Next couple, uh, uh, the next match point, unforced error by Hercotch. Really kind of easy neutral backhand. Uh, on the six-all point, easy sitting second serve return that Hercotch missed. And then on Zverev set point, it was a pretty poor movement by Hercotch, who hit a big backhand down the line and then just really didn't didn't move forward after it. And Zverev defended very short in the court. The ball ended up getting really low on Hercotch, and it was technically another forehand on forced error. So the difference in this second set uh, was missed first serves and finish line unforced errors from for Hercotch in the end. Hubie absolutely got tight. And he got the two things wrong that Zverev never gets wrong. Zverev doesn't miss first serves, and Zverev doesn't make unforced errors. In big spots and in tie breaks, those are the two things with Zverev that you can usually always count on, and those are the two things where Hercotch faltered. But I am kind of glad... Although there were two forehand unforced errors, technically, I am kind of glad that Hercotch, as a whole in this match, and even in the second set, wasn't just the forehand going away on him. In fact, overall, the forehand is a shot that I blame less for this loss than I do the serve. Which brings us to the third set. Hercotch's serve wasn't all that great in the third set either. Now, you can't tell from the percentage because Hercotch made a higher percentage of his first serves, but uh, he got way less free points. And I think a lot of it was because he was not hitting his spots as well compared to what he was doing in the first set. But the biggest thing that stood out in this third set was attitude, honestly. Uh, Hercotch just got really negative. He seemed kind of miserable. Yeah, it was a tough way to lose the second set, no doubt about it. But he just... Seemed to get down on himself. Zverev looked gassed. He looked tired. But he seemed to be embracing it. Interacting with the crowd. More positive. More positivity towards his bench. Uh, just a lot of fight from Zverev. And at 3-all, he finally breaks serve with some great depth in baseline rallies. Hercotch loves to hug the baseline. If you have great depth against Hercotch... You're usually going to get him to hit pretty much a baseline half volley. And, uh, I mean, that that's a tough one for Hercotch. Sometimes he'll miss him, but when he makes him, usually there's not much on the ball. You can attack it. Zverev's backhand was the best ground stroke on the court in this 3-all game, as it should be. Hercotch did have a game point at 40-30, and he missed the forehand that I thought was a... Lack of effort, lack of focus, miss. Now, it's hard to prove that. It's hard to quantify that. But it's one of those you-know-it-when-you-see-it kind of things where it seemed like the feet didn't get quite in the right position, the mind wasn't fully engaged in the in the process of choosing the forehand, and it was 
It was a, a listless forehand miss at 40-30. And then Zverev comes up with this insane return at deuce. Forehand winner cross court, best return of the match. And on add out, Hercotch misses the spot on his first serve. Uh, solid defense from Zverev. And ultimately, Hercotch makes another forehand on forced error. A few shots into the rally. Or maybe like several shots into the rally. So the big things were Zverev kind of staying back more, where he is the better player, not letting the counterpuncher hit passing shots all day, right? That's never a good idea. Don't let the counterpuncher hit a bunch of passing shots and win the match that way. Make Hercotch beat you and your defense if you have the legs and the energy to do it. And you know what? Zverev maybe didn't quite have the energy to do it, but he did. He fought through it. I think it, it's a, a really gritty effort from Zverev. He showed a lot of heart. He showed a lot of guts uh, to overcome rough, rough scheduling. And he showed a lot of mental toughness because things didn't go well for him for the first half of the match. He lost a tight first set. He applied lots of pressure in the second set and never got the break. Then he missed an overhead at three all in the tie break. And through all these things, he just stayed with it. And, uh, you know, Zverev, he probably doesn't get enough credit for being a resilient, high-effort match player. And he needed it in this match. It helped that Hercotch's serve went down the way it did because, um, again, they ended up playing way more baseline rallies than I think Hercotch wants to play in an ideal world. So that is Germany's win in the men's singles. Uh, Sviantek versus Kerber, I'm not going to get into too much. Uh, tough task for Kerber when you think about it, going up against the best baseliner in women's tennis when, you know, if you're Kerber, you don't really have much of a serve, so you really have to beat her from the baseline. To Kerber's credit, who it's great to see back uh, first tennis since 2021 for, for Kerber, and uh, I love her game. It's so unique, the way she produces her strokes and uh, the way she uses the geometry of the court. And she's one of the ultimate pace absorbers, one of the ultimate redirectors that the game has ever seen. She had a lot of chances to go up a break in the first six games. I thought the thing that was lacking for her was just return quality. Felt like every break point, it was just the return went right into the middle and Sviantek, when she's anxious, gets even more aggressive. So, you know, Iga just had plus one balls to attack. And uh, she did that. She punished Kerber's attackable returns at every opportunity. Ended up holding uh, for 4-3. I think she saved break points at 3-all and 2-all. And then Iga, after the match talked about the ball change at 3-4, and she said, I think direct quote here, but I am going off memory. She said, I felt like I could be a more dynamic player after the ball change. So I was like, what, what does that mean exactly? More dynamic player off of the ball change? So I went back and I tried to watch that 3-4 game extra carefully. And uh, it's like, Oh, so now you can just hit the shit out of the ball and there's really nothing she can do about it? Is that what more dynamic means? Because from watching that, it seems like that's what more dynamic means. In all seriousness, tons of big down-the-line backhands really changed this match for Iga. She ended this, uh, this first set with nine backhand winners. And Kerber was killing her with... Uh, with the forehand off of her cross-court backhand. Because, uh, look, you don't want to be a righty hitting cross-court backhands at Kerber's forehand. It just looks like a bad time altogether. Total, total nightmare. The way Kerber redirects and times her forehand down the line and how flat and low that ball stays and how sometimes it tails away from you, I don't want anything to do with that. And neither did Iga. Iga was like, I'm ripping my backhand down the line whenever I can, as early as I can. Let's take this forehand counterpunching, uh, or counterattacking, I should say. Let's take the forehand counterattacking 
off the table for Kerber. And that was that was big for Iga. Massive level drop for Kerber as well. I'm not going to get into the details, but that definitely happened. Um, that's all I got for United Cup. So we've covered Brisbane. We've covered United Cup. All we got is Rublev winning Hong Kong. I don't have much here because I didn't really get to watch. Um, there's just too much going on. 15th title of Rublev's career. I always um, am interested in the next-gen title race, especially because only Medvedev has a slam. So when they all retire and we look at who had the best career, you know, we'll look at things like year-end rankings, I think, how many top 10s, how many top 5s. But I, I think a big one is going to be titles. And right now it looks like this. Zverev has 21. Medvedev has 20. Rublev has 15. Tsitsipas has 10. And Dimonor has 7. Other than Rublev, Jerry Shang, big week, semifinals, young player from China, trains at IMG Academy. I have heard from good sources that he worked really hard on his serve this offseason, which is great because... I don't know, last time I watched Jerry Shang play was in Miami, in person, um, courtside. And I was like, wow, this guy can be really, really good if he just gets a serve. So glad to hear that he um, has improved his serve big time. That's going to be a big help for Shang. Uh, Rusevori makes the final. Uh, good for Emil, who's probably someone who fits into that category of Ranked a little low right now compared to what the ability is. Rusevori is a great ball striker. Both wings. Serve and athleticism haven't really developed around the ball striking as much as I thought it would. But starting the year off with the final, um, it's a good thing for Emil. And I'll, I'll keep my eye on some of those other things as we uh, progress through the year. All right. Australian Open draw. It's coming out Thursday. Get pumped. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.